You are now listening to the Messed Up series. Thank you, Enrico. So yeah, the purpose, for those of you who have joined us just now, the purpose of these talks is just to transfer knowledge, to celebrate failure as an opportunity for learning. Because usually, and I say this is my experience as PhD students, you look up to these academics or more advanced PhD students and think, how did they did it? How did they do this? How did they get there? It seems like they've already learned so much. And sometimes it seems like you're failure, failing after failing after failing, and you need to learn from that. So that's why we came up with this idea for this series so that fledging academics and more advanced PhD students can share with us their experience about failure and how they have learned from it. So for today, this is our second episode of the second season of the Messed Up series, and we have an amazing guest, Bass. He is the Business Development Director at our Security and Crime Science Department here at UCL, but he's also a crime fiction writer. So he has a very interesting experience. He has written two crime series set in India, and he has received several awards for them. So he has a very interesting experience. He is writing about crime fiction, but he's also witness to academic life. He has seen the journey of academics. He has also seen the journey of PhD students. And today he is here to talk about failure in crime science and crime fiction. So welcome, Bas. We're very excited to have you here today. Well, thank you all for, for invite, inviting me. Let me first check, can, can everyone hear me? Hear me, is it all coming through? Because sometimes in this back room, uh, the internet is a bit wobbly. Okay, so it's great. It's uh, I think it's going to be a fun forty-five minutes or, or so, however long we're speaking. And just to set the set the scene for you, why why Martin asked me to, to come along and, and talk to you? I've been at the department for sixteen years now. Although it doesn't seem it doesn't seem that long. It's like it's like quicksand. You you get in and then you can't find a way out. As uh, as many in a good in a good sense. I mean, being here at, uh, at the JDI, but a little bit about my background. Uh, so, you know, I did say to Martin when he asked me to do this, that I'm not an academic, I'm not sure what I can contribute, but he said, no, your experience would be intriguing. So do come along. My background is management consultancy. Um, I grew up, I was born in London. I grew up here, uh, typical Asian parents, although I wanted to be a writer when I was very young, you know, they, they took one look at that and they said, absolutely not. There's no such thing. You can't earn any money being a writer. So you're going to be an accountant, lawyer or a doctor. Uh, so I studied accounts at London School of Economics. And then after that, I interviewed with PricewaterhouseCoopers and it was a week long interview. And during the course of that interview, they explained what my life would be like if I tried to study for chartered accountancy. And unfortunately, it was not a life that sounded very appealing to me. So I came back to my parents and said, I'm not going to do this. Uh, and instead, we agreed that I could do management consultancy, which they didn't really know what that was. I didn't really know what it was. I just knew that I wouldn't have to study for chartered accountancy exams. Uh, so it was a happy middle ground. And in the end, it turned out to be the, the best decision of my life. Uh, because the company I worked for, they got a massive contract to go to India. So at the age of 23, um, I had the chance to go to India and we went for three months, but I spent 10 years living there as a management consultant. I did some work in China and the Middle East as well at the same time. And as a young person, uh, and many of you will know this because you've traveled to, to the UK, uh, there's absolutely nothing better uh, and more building for your character and your career 
than going abroad, finding out about new cultures, working with people that you don't really know and immersing yourself in a different environment. So I suppose that's the first lesson that I, I have. There's nothing I can recommend more than traveling widely as possible. Yeah. So you basically uh, try to find a middle ground with, uh, within uh, what your family wanted and your dreams were to find your route. And uh, I guess this has been quite a, um, well, not straight line, not a straight route to find uh, an agreement in these type of situations. And then you traveled finding back your origins. I mean, being uh, of Asian family origins, uh, though yeah. brought up in London, born and brought up in London. Well, absolutely. So I suppose you could say that was the first failure of my life, failure to become a chartered accountant, which was my, my dad's dream for me. Uh, but ultimately, it wasn't really a failure because, you know, I had a great career out of it and it changed the course of, of my life. And, and it was a know, choice, India, right? It, I think it, it was, was a courageous choice. It's very easy to go for careers that are supposedly to make money and that are stable and provide like a foreseeable, secure future. But then it takes also courage to pursue what really makes you like what, what really moves your your vibes. No, <laughs> I think you're you're giving me uh, you're making me sound braver than I was. Uh, it was just the horror of of having to study to be a chartered accountant because they show you you get you they, they showed you at PricewaterhouseCoopers they show you these textbooks and it's like fifty of them and they're all about this thick, and you look around at the people there and half of them I'm being unfair but half of them look so boring you think how am I going to spend the next four years of my life just being here studying these books right. all day and night uh, I'm sure accountants so, are super interesting and super fun. <laughs> so how is it that after that and going into consulting and having this abroad experience, how is it that your journey ends up or continues into academia and crime friction writing? Well, how did that come about? Again, this is another thing that I can't stress enough to, to all of this, this, the PhD students here. You don't know where your life will end, will take you. Just, you know, you've embarked on this incredible course of doing a PhD, hopefully a subject that moves you and inter interests you and that's, should be the most important factor in doing one of these things uh, but ultimately what will happen at the end of that or what will happen five years after the end of that or ten years after the end of that no one can predict because when, when I was young there was still the notion that you would join a company after graduation you would spend the rest of your life working in that company gradually hopefully progressing and getting promoted etc etc but that would be your life today the world has completely changed people don't seem to stay in the same same industry let alone the same job for more than a few years and there's nothing wrong with that in fact that's probably a better way to live now and a more exciting way to live it was yeah. for me coming back to the uk and ending up at ucl was um was uh it, well it happened not by choice it happened because my mother got cancer and i had been away for a very long time and i thought she was the doctor said she had one year to live so i said i'll come back and spend some time with her and uh she, she turned out to have seven years to live, which was, you know, nice. Uh, but I wanted something that was a little bit more relaxed. And as much as I loved management consultancy, um, I wanted something with a, which was a bit more flexible in time. And so I looked around for jobs that would use my same skill set, but in a more relaxing environment. And I was told, I had no experience of it, but I was told that academia is supposedly, allegedly, uh, a little bit more relaxing. So I started and applying for positions. Yeah, from the outside, people become... believe academia is a nine to five full stop all the time. 
Um, actually, um, what you said, uh, Nadine uh, gave us her experience. That is actually another amazing example. Uh, she said, I had a similar route. My parents said I had to do medicine or law. I wanted to study languages. Psychology was the compromise, and here I am now. And uh, I also have another example. When I was in Oxford, uh, as my wife was doing the master there and I was commuting to UCL, um, there was a, a lecturer, a, well, an academic at, uh, at her college. He's Russian. He was coming from a family of doctors that wanted him to be a doctor. So he never told them that his PhD was in physics until the day of the graduation ceremony when they came thinking that he would have graduated in medicine and he said, no, I am graduating in physics. And he's a great lecturer, a great academic in the field, but it's interesting to see how he even has hidden this. That's so amazing. <laughs> it's, it's a series of examples, yours, Nadine's, uh, and this one, and you're like, oh, wow, life can be really... The, the only problem in an Asian family is that our parents are too nosy and there's absolutely no way I could have hidden something like that for four years. You know, I couldn't have pretended to go to LSE every day and just carried on trying to be a writer. It just wouldn't have worked. Um, but it does bring me to my second failure, joining academia, and another lesson for everyone here, uh, which is overconfidence. So I had 10 brilliant years of management consultancy in, in really big growing markets like India and China. So I was full of myself. You know, I thought, you know, I can walk into any job. What's academia? It's good. You know, it's nothing compared to the real world of private enterprise. And my first interview was at Imperial for a similar kind of business development role. And I walked in with zero preparation thinking, you know, I can just wing it. I know everything. And within, within 10 minutes, I was literally sweating and I can still remember because they started asking me about my vision for Imperial's um, marketing and strategy, branding strategy and things like that. And I hadn't, this was how arrogant I was, I hadn't even bothered to go on their website and have a proper look at, you know, what their plans were, what their history was. I just thought I could, I could, as we say in England, blag it. And it was so embarrassing. And by the end, I couldn't even dare to ask them when you might be getting back to me because I could see from their eyes, there was no chance of them getting back to me but right. I did learn my lesson so that when I went to UCL a couple of weeks later um, I had studied so much I created this big powerpoint and I see that Gloria is uh, Gloria is on the uh, on the call here she was in the panel she was on the panel and I, I I guess I must have presented so much nonsense on this slide that immediately afterwards she came outside and she offered me uh, offered me the job but I guess this is also a lesson for anyone who's applying to any job, right? Academia or not, is you should be prepared, right? Yeah, but people with experience tend to forget that and believe that their experience will, will carry them through. And I can tell you that's not, that does, it doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. No matter how experienced you think you are, each new role, they have expectations that you will have made an effort to understand what they want, not just what you want. Right. And how, where does crime fiction writing come in? Well, I mean, that's, um, so all of us have passions, right? We all have hobbies and passions outside. Now, hopefully your work is also your passion. I've been very lucky. I loved 10 years in India and China. 
it was like a one big holiday for 10 years. It wasn't really a job, but I got paid well for it. Uh, and then to come to UCL. Uh, honestly, 16 years have passed and I haven't felt like I've been a, other than maybe the first couple of months, which were a bit dull before I uh, started to find my feet and understand what academia was about. It, it's felt like another giant holiday. Um, and along that way, you keep your other passions. So, you know, I kept writing all that time as a hobby. I wrote my first novel when I was 17. And what happens when you finish a novel, if you're serious about becoming a writer, you send it into agents because they're the gatekeepers for being published. Certainly in the old days, nowadays you can self-publish, but if you want to be published in the traditional way uh, by a big publisher, then you have to go to agents. Then if they take you on, they send it out to what are called commissioning editors at these big, big publishing houses. And they decide whether or not to buy your book and pay you some money. And then they go through the publishing process, marketing, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll come on to that a little bit later, but one thing I want to mention now is, um, is, is the way that <clears throat> the things that happen when you're in a particular job, I mean, you just can't tell what's around the corner. So I had an initial contract for about two years at UCL. <clears throat> and after two years, my funding ran out. And I think I was probably one month from being given the sack. <clears throat> Although Gloria would probably deny this, but that was the fact. The contract was running out and there was no funding in place to, to, to keep me on. But what we had done that summer, we had applied for a huge PhD centre, which you guys now know as, as UCL Secret, Security Science Doctoral Centre. And it was Gloria, myself and Hervé Borion, the, now the Deputy dire Director. He joined at about the same time I did. The three of us wrote this application for me, had this vision for this great PhD center that would do X, Y, and Z. And then we sent it in. And then I think it was like two weeks or so before I was going to get the sack, it was, we were told that we'd, we'd won this center. We'd won seven million pounds. And part of that would, would help to keep me in post. So you just never know where your efforts, something you think you might have failed in, because by that time we, we'd forgotten about it. We thought, okay, we're not going to get this. Um, well, I, Sorry, to, uh, we thought we had a chance because we'd been invited to an interview, but you still never think because the, the, the percentages of winning things for big bids are so low that you still don't yeah. really believe that you're going to get it. Uh, and just in the nick of time, so, you know, that, it came through. Yeah, that's right. And the last, what, 11 years now, um, I've spent helping to run that centre and working with students and it's one of the, the best parts of being in this job has been to see students from the very first cohort and onwards come through and go into fantastic jobs and occasionally have breakdowns along the way. Uh, but, you know, sometimes reorienting themselves and their PhDs. And you only have to look at how many of them we've, we've decided to hire ourselves. So right. Toby, Ella, James, um, so many of them to tell you the quality of the people like like all of you uh, Enrico sorry excuse me Enrico. <laughs> I remember on that point of view I joined in 2014 and I remember how you actually were keeping quite high our moral you made us feel special I, I mean at that time not even barely but still I'm not that sure at this time but you were actually trying to say we have selected you because 
you have been top on what we were looking for with respect to many others. Mm. That was actually pretty impressive. At the same time, I guess, I mean, all PhD journeys have their pitfalls and some may have even uh, bigger ones. What would you say are the main risks, the main situations that so many PhD, PhD students have risked to or for kind of failures in their journeys? Well, I think the, for me, the, the number one issue that happens with, with PhD students is a failure to take enough time to decide the topic that they want and are passionate about studying for three years. And I've seen quite a few students, researchers, I should really call you, uh, who get a year, maybe two years in, and then suddenly they lose, they lose the will to live. They, they just can't face getting up and doing another day's work on this particular topic because it's not, yeah. it's not, it's not a passion for them. Um, it's not the same thing as being difficult. If you have passion for something, it doesn't matter how difficult it is, you will still feel energy to try and tackle it. But when you lose passion for something, because maybe you didn't take enough time at the beginning to really think through what's going to be involved, maybe you just went for a sexy topic because you, know, you thought it would be really sexy or good for your career or someone else advised you, but it, and, then you and then you lose your way. It's very hard to get back. I remember one, two guys actually, uh, they were they were both in computer science, Enrico, uh, your mob. Um, they were they were sorry they were they were in secret, but they were also they were computer sciencey types. So one of them, he decided halfway through, and it wasn't that he wasn't intelligent, or he just decided that his real passion in life was cross country uh, mega marathons. You know, like fifty kilometers mm -hmm. or hundred kilometers through the desert. And so he just walked in one day and he sat next to me and he said, "Vaz, I'm really sorry." And I know I've wasted all your studentship money, uh, but I can't do this anymore. And I just want to go and do marathons. <laughs> and he was in his mid thirties. He says, I said, my dream is to do it for, do it for England. Um, so, you know, what could we do? We wished him the best, but, but the, the most wonderful one. And I say wonderful because, you know, if something is not right for you, you should not continue. That's another thing I've learned through my life. But isn't it difficult sometimes to find your passion? Like I can see some students, it's, it's very difficult to sometimes understand if you're going for a topic because as you say, it's sexy or you seem, you think it's viable or everyone is excited for it. Like, how do you really know it's your passion? And I can see this, especially sometimes when PhD students don't have as much work experience. So it's very difficult to understand the whole range of topics that you could go for and exactly which one is it that you're passionate for. It's incredibly difficult. Uh, it's incredibly difficult, which is why it will still, hap still happen where, where researchers will take on a topic and then lose, lose interest. Uh, and and there's, no, there's no concrete answer to that. There really isn't. Uh, and sometimes it is a bit of trial and error. It's just that when you do a PhD, the trial and error can consume a very large portion of your, yes. of your, you know, your, your growth when it comes to trying to get into a, a career. So I don't have any magic bullet answer for that, except to take as much time as you think you need uh, to assess these various things and do a lot of reading and talk to people. Uh, right. And then, you know, hopefully, 
hopefully you'll recognize the signs of passion. Um, there was another guy who came in, another very clever chap. He did everything really well. I think he even did his upgrade perfectly. But then he just walked in one day with a guitar. <laughs> he said, Vas, my real passion is music. Um, and I just, I just want to go away and ex explore this. And I want to play my guitar under a tree and do this and that and just, just chill out for a year and figure out my life. And you know, what could we say? We just said, that's, that's fine if that's where you've got, because he's clearly a very intelligent person, uh, very capable, but he just got to a point where he, re where he realized he'd probably taken a wrong turn. Right. And how about your experience with uh, business and industry? I guess you have been witness to how PhD students navigate their studies and how they connect or not connect with industry and how important this is for the research and their journey after the PhD. Yeah, I mean, having seen so many students graduate from the program and so many of them go into really good jobs, I can tell you there is a direct correlation between the students who have taken the time to network, to go to conferences or industry events, to talk to people about their work, to find out what, they, what they're looking for, to try and seek partnerships and make those partnerships. All of those things are slowly but surely preparing you for that day after your graduation when you are sitting in front of a senior executive or a panel of executives at a company that you really want to work for, an organization you really want to work for, and they start grilling you. Now, if you've had almost no contact with people like that, it is an infinitely harder task for you to sit in front of them and articulate why yeah. they should hire you, why your science, the science that you studied is so important and why you're so bloody good at it. Um, one of the other failures I've seen with academics in general is in this area uh, and it's twofold. One is not doing enough of it, uh, just being too shy or too wary or thinking that it's somebody else's business to go out and do this networking and, and, and only attending narrow academic conferences where they just talk to other bods from the you know, same little pool and not trying to widen that pool out a bit. But the other thing is a failure to have or, or to showcase their personality, not have a personality, that sounds rude, a failure to showcase their personality. So what do I mean by that? I mean that so many academics I've met have wonderful, interesting, intriguing things to say about the world, and not just about their work, and who have great personalities, but they don't show them because I don't know why in academia it seems to be that you know, you've got to keep it all buttoned in and you're not really, you're supposed to be really scholarly all the time and you yeah. can't just be yourself and let your hair down, just be normal people. Um, but the people who seem to have success, as far as I can see, are the ones who don't mind showing some of that personality, don't mind being a bit vulnerable at times or making a fool of themselves on occasion. Yeah, I think it's a, a thing of credibility. Like, at least as a PhD student, sometimes I feel a bit insecure about it. are people going to believe what I'm saying? And um, I mean, I've done my best effort, but I'm not completely sure that I've done it perfectly. So sometimes the temptation is to go for super serious, super rigorous, super technical, so that you seem credible. That's right. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I've seen that happen, happen a lot, especially with younger researchers. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with presenting a really professional front 
Uh, well, what I'm saying is sometimes when you get through the professional front and even when you're presenting, I mean, think about real life. The people we generally tend to warm to the most are the people who have some color, who have some life, who have some, some warmth and who we, try, who we believe we, we can see a little bit of their real personality behind the professional front that they have to have to put on. And, you know, that appeals to us. And I don't mean you have to be some kind of, you know, juggling whatever, joker, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I just mean that if you have, showcasing who you really are, uh, it really does, I feel personally, uh, benefit you. That sentence you about the joker was more character. of an attack to me, right, Vaz? <laughs> not, not at all. I, I <laughs> no, I'm joking. Well, if your Actually, personality kind of is of a joker, then... Uh, it's always kind of ideas. Well, I, no, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I suspect that you're one of the more popular lecturers in our department because you don't mind, uh, uh, you don't mind uh, being yourself and showcasing. I still remember when I asked you to do um, a a presentation for future PhD students that uh, you came in and did your Marlon Brando Godfather impression. Uh, no, so, that wasn't and people remember that. Evening. That was an yeah. industry, industry evening. evening. That I've done the Godfather yeah. impression. It must have been memorable. Yeah. I yeah, probably so. still have the video somewhere. Um, but actually, that kind of idea of being able to show more than just, let's say, the cold uh, presentation with technical data is always in, uh, in what you think about, Vaz, like in the PhD open evenings. Uh, where, yes, there are all the informations, you and Shane giving presentations about all these, a lot of interesting information, but at the same time, you have asked in the past me and many others to present, uh, to show the passion of what it means being a PhD student here. At the same time, there's a very interesting question from Sarah City in the chat that I wanted to ask you. You have, uh, you have uh, showed us some cases of people that decided, wait, maybe this is not my route. But at that point, they were maybes. So that was kind of, and you've been very, very nice, very quick answer as a person, but obviously you need to stick to uh, regulations and UCL guidelines. So what does UCL allow for these type of situations? Uh, do you mean situations where somebody wants to leave the program? Yes, but they are not maybe fully sure. So there's kind uh, of- Interruption. So UCL has a system where you can interrupt I can't remember how many months um, and there are different reasons you can interrupt because, you know, you have uh, you have an issue and you just need to interrupt. It could be health related. It could be mental health related. It could be pregnancy. It could be family situation. Uh, and it could be that you just need the space to go away and think about things. That one, the last one is not in concrete. So you need to have more of a discussion with your supervisors make sure they're also on board with you taking three or four months off to go away. And you have to be clear that the possibility could be that you don't come back or that you don't want to. Um, honesty, I think in these situations serves everybody. We have had so many situations where um, students just go silent and, it's, and, you know, for perfectly legitimate reasons, you know, they could be struggling or, cope or struggling to cope. Uh, but then if they don't communicate with us, or the opposite happens, the supervisors are not very good at communicating with them. And that breakdown in communication means that it's very much harder to get to the root of the problem or to find a way right. forward, even if, that, even if that way forward is 
for you to leave the program. And there's nothing wrong with that. I have to keep emphasizing there's nothing wrong with leaving uh, a PhD program, just as there's nothing wrong with leaving a job or a relationship if it's not right for you in life. Yeah, it's just much harder to do when you're so difficult to come forward sometimes no like you're so scared of doing things wrong you start avoiding these spaces where you could be told that you're not doing things well and then it just spirals down until there's nothing else you can do yeah absolutely it's it's so hard when you're and I still remember when I was in my 20s um I mean I couldn't even it was hard to articulate even to my parents and, and stand up to what to, to the things and I've already always been a fairly forceful personality so for people who are not that that forceful um, I can imagine it's very difficult to, to to come forward and talk to someone who is you don't really see that your supervisors that often I'm guessing so it's not an easy conversation to have with them and say look I'm really struggling and I'm not sure how it's going to pan out um, and but honestly it's always the best policy you just remembered me a conversation I had a few days ago not related exactly to that but more to what uh, what to do after the phd and i connected it to a couple of other things um sometimes there's kind of the feeling maybe uh, for some students being like what if i don't want to remain in academia will my supervisor accept that type of choice and so on and um uh, obviously uh, i think that uh, it's a great opportunity to what a person likes so uh, that is kind of crucial. But also I remember one thing that Gianluca told me once uh, at the very beginning of my PhD that was even for a supervisor, it's not that uh, it's not to see only that their students are going to academia, kind of show they are creating clones of themselves almost. While the opportunity of seeing that they are doing a bit of both and all these different things are actually um, very useful and is once again a question of being able to follow our own passions mm. uh, is something that I feel like you are you are explaining through a lot of different great examples well I mean I could give you a couple of very brilliant examples so Ella Ella Cobain who you guys know works in the department she was in the first cohort and she began with uh, Helen Braley also from the first cohort, and they became such good friends, they decided to do some joint work together on human trafficking. Now, at the end of that, and it was so good that the, the, the UK human trafficking uh, organi a police organization, they, they used it to rework their methodologies and wrote it into their best practice. Now, when they, when they graduated, Ella decided she wanted to continue in academia. And as you know, she's been brilliant, and you know, she's one of the stars of our department. Uh, but Helen decided she wanted to go into uh, the public sector and she joined the National Crime Agency. She did so well there that she ended up getting promoted and then she got promoted again to the Home Office. And now, I, I don't know, she's going to be the Prime Minister in a few years, I'm, I'm sure of it. Um, but two people doing similar kinds of PhDs on the programme decided in different career tra trajectories. And we continue to work with them both because we work with Helen because you know, obviously she has an interest in what we're, we're doing and LA is here. Uh, so I personally think that all routes are open and, and lots of our students have gone into mainstream corporations, big security companies. It, 
etc etc there's just endless routes that you can go into but the, the main thing of course again is to um, in my opinion is to take your time and assess the job that you're going to be most passionate about now i know okay. you have to pay the rent and you have to get going on your career everyone is telling you you've got to get going you've got to get going you've got to get a job you've got to get out there and earn some money uh, but taking one or two months if it's possible for you to try and wait for that job that might be the right fit definitely those are amazing stories Baz. what about your experience in crime fiction writing did like do you find any commonalities between your writing and academia life is there anything you have learned from your failures in crime fiction writing? Although I know you're very successful, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure that has been a trial and error journey, hasn't it? Well, uh, yeah. So 20 odd years I wrote uh, as a hobby while I was still doing all sorts of other jobs. Um, seven novels I sent into agents and rejected by hundreds of times. So it was an incredibly long journey. And by, I was published at 40. So by that age, I had not expected to, to be published in that way. Um, and since then, I've been incredibly fortunate to, to have some success with, with a, with a, with a you know, global publisher. And they keep giving me new contracts. So because I have a, a base of readers now around the world. But the biggest lesson I have from all of that experience is that you have, and, and this is a lesson also for academics, I guess, is you have to be able to tell stories. You have to be able to tell stories about yourself and mm -hmm. your work. And one of the failures that I see with academics over the years, or, or that's a cruel way to put it, one of the things that I see with academics who are really successful is their ability to tell stories in a way that excites their audience. So stories about their research. Why is it important? Why is it going to change the world, even if in a small way? Why are they the right people to do it? What's been interesting about their journey in academia? And the people who can articulate that well in their, in their research proposals, it's noticeable how, how uh, more regularly they win research funding. Because you have to try and, yeah, well, try to imagine. Because it's, when I send in a, a novel, right? I mean, at this stage, it's, it's, it's fine. I know what I'm doing. But earlier on, I'm sending it into some agent who's probably read 200 submissions that week. He or she is really tired. And, you know, they look at these things and they normally read the first 10 pages. And if they don't like it or if the prose quality is not good enough, they won't even read anymore. They just dump it in the bin. And that's, that's, that's how it works. It's the same for when you guys write papers or research proposals and they go out for review. These reviewers are probably tired. They've probably had you know, a 70 hour week. They got screaming kids, et cetera, et cetera. They do not really want to read your proposal, but they, they have to do it. It's part of the industry. So how do you make them sit up and take notice? You, it's your ability to tell a good story and to get straight into the action very quickly. And a lot of academics don't do that. They waffle. Again, I'm not intending to be cruel, but I read, part of my role here is to read nearly every pr big proposal that goes in. And I have to so many times advise people to fix things because they're boring. Nobody cares. Nobody's interested because you've made it boring. It's um, not passionate. Whereas the science that you're doing, it's not passionate. And, it's, and the science, it's not well written. Uh, and it's not enticing to a tired reviewer 
who's read 50 other applications for the same call uh, that day or that week. So that's, that's something I think all everybody can work on, how to present yourself and your research in a better way uh, and to tell a story when you're doing so, which is so much more interesting than just, oh, I want to, I want to solve cybercrime, you know. This is an amazing message, I gotta say. I, I really love it. But at the same time, I'm, I'm taking Nadine's question that is actually great because building up confidence uh, and so on takes time, time to exercise, time to get those things right, to refine and all of including when you have to send the publishers. And, uh, as you said, the 10 pages may count for everything. I mean, an example on that is also the first Harry Potter book was rejected by seven publishers before getting in the hands of Bloomsbury. And uh, we all know what Harry Potter has been then in the next, uh, in the following 20 years, basically. So Nadine is asking, how do you find the time to write alongside a full-time job? Do you set aside specific writing time, kind of organizing your schedule accordingly? Uh, yes, um, I, I write on the weekends mainly. Occasionally, if I have a deadline coming up, I might write early in the morning. I'll get up at seven and write for a couple of hours. I mean, I'm, I'm a very organized person. And I guess that's another thing that I find that drives me mad is when I come across academics who, who want my help uh, but are not organized. It just drives me nuts. Uh, so, you know, this, these are failures for me, real failures that would really want me to want to shoot someone. Uh, people who refuse to reply to emails. Um, I was helping run a major, a major contract a few years ago and the lead academic, you know, professor, very successful but simply refuse to reply to any emails. And it's impossible to, for me to do my job if nobody replies to the emails. But the one thing that drives me uh, madder than anything else on earth is when academics leave it to the very last second to apply for a research proposal. Yeah. And that is because you can never, never, ever do as good a job writing a research proposal in the last couple of days before a call goes in, as you can if you did a first draft two months earlier and then worked on it and edited it. So you're literally making it harder for yourself to win this proposal just by believing that you're clever enough to wake up in the last two or three days and write this proposal. And I know why people do it because they've got so many other things going on at the same time, but that is the way not to succeed in, 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 in academia. It's the exact opposite of, of making a good priority list and right. putting down, you, if you know you're gonna apply for this call, you know, six months out, to wake up in the last month and, and try and do it, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. Also because at least what I've learned in this journey is sometimes when you write something, you need to let it rest for a few days and then come back Absolutely. to it. It's a lengthy process. It's not a matter of putting in 40 hours straight it won't be good. I'll give you a simple example from, from, from big publishers. The way they work is I have to submit a novel, first draft, one year before it's published because that's how much time it will go through another four or five uh, drafts, three different editors, because they know that that one year of going through and changing things and letting it, as you say, rest and percolate, it makes for an infinitely better end product. And, you know, they understand it. 
and they're the publishing industry. So why is it that academia does not seem to, for the most part, understand this? I won't name the culprits in this department who drive me mad by doing this, uh, but it happens all the time. And I just cannot understand why you would do that, why you would reduce your own chances of winning these proposals. If, why, why, why apply for it in the first place if you're not going to do the best, give yourself the best chance? Right. So you would need to set up perhaps a schedule so you know, okay, for example, what's my plan of this year of 2022? These are my my milestones and this is what I need to do six months prior so that I can get to there in a good place. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. If you know you're going to apply for a bid six months, I mean, it's different if a bid comes to you very late. That I understand, right? And you have to respond. And that's, that happens a lot as well. That's fine. But if you actually know you've got like three or four months, then your aim should be to put into your diary, I'm going to set aside a day to do a first draft or two days well, well in advance of that end point. Because you might then find that you need advice from other people that you hadn't thought about, or you need industry input, or you need an industry partner. So many times I've seen bids fail because somebody realizes this with one week to go, and then it's impossible to get an industry partner or impossible to get good input from an industry card. Mm -hmm. um, on that, I mean, I'm thinking to previous experiences, uh, Vaz, I remember once. So we have had a bit of everything, me and you, in terms of uh, some that came out at the very last day and I, I had to basically do it in one day or similar. But I remember also uh, uh, you being nervous when we were like 40 minutes from the deadline and I was like, yeah, I still need to mad. <laughs> But oh, be mad. that that happened. Hervé, Hervé, I tell you what, Hervé, years and years ago, Hervé's, okay, I'm going to name him. Her, I'm going to name him Shane Hervé. He does this all the time. He, um, we, we won a massive European project once. Um, it was three or four million euros. Uh, but then we were trying to bid for a follow-up. And I, I kid you not, this is a European project, so it's massive bureaucracy. And it was 10 minutes before the deadline uh, that we submitted this. Uh, to be fair, we did spend quite a long time in advance getting it together because uh, it's so bureaucratic. Uh, but he did keep me waiting till the last uh, minute. I, I would do the same. I have done the same. I mean, stuff working for months <laughs> and then waiting for the really last second to submit. <laughs> we actually have uh, another great question from uh, Valentina in the chat. Um, what would be some good tips to bounce back from a failure? For example, a failed proposal. So could you give the idea on the failed proposals? Maybe I could add something on the failed papers and rejections. All right, okay. Well, if I, one thing you have to realize that is when I was young, failure was a, was a bad word. You know, uh, your parents, your peers, your, your teachers, nobody would accept it. Uh, but the, the world has moved, flipped 180 degrees. Now today, failure is, is is just part of the process uh, of growing and learning and becoming better at things. And it's a huge industry as well. You know, there's loads of podcasts and books about how to fail upwards and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I suppose it's like when somebody dies, they say there are like five stages you have to go through um, from the initial shock to the acceptance at the end. It's the same with anything else. And I remember when I previously, when I'd sent in book proposals when I was not published and I thought it was a good book. 
and then to get back a whole bunch of letters from agents saying basically go off and die you're rubbish uh, actually they don't say that they just give you a standard letter these days they, they, they don't have the time to give you proper feedback uh, but it's crushing it's soul destroying when you're passionate about something for it to be to get kicked in the teeth uh, and you have to accept that you have to accept that you're going to be down for a short period and the way that you get over it in my personal opinion is to focus on a new challenge and for me that's always been finding a new subject a new book that excites me to write uh, if i if we lose a big research proposal uh, i say no no problem i've got two others that i'm working on or oh, there's some other thing that we that is coming up soon and we'll bid for that it's it's to try and get back and the other thing that really helps is to just step away from uh, step away from it and academics are again this is a terrible failure of academia that i've seen over the last uh, decade and uh, what 15 16 years academics are don't switch off they're too connected you can't even you can't even get them to retire as gloria knows because even when they're retired they're still bloody working and doing stuff and but when things go wrong more than any other time is when you need to go off and do something utterly unrelated uh, to, to it. Uh, for me, it's, I go and play cricket. I'm, you know, um, I've been playing it since I was a small boy. I play it every weekend uh, during the summers. I practice in the winters. And it's not so much that I'm any good at it because I'm not terribly good at it, but I have huge passion for it. And when I'm there with my friends, uh, you know, we're like grown men being, being idiots. I mean, it's just a, a stick and a ball, really. There's, there's no meaning to it. But we have a lot of fun and then we go for a, a meal afterwards and we'll chat and we'll talk. And we'll, I'll completely forget about anything that might have failed uh, professionally for me. So right. walk away it from It refreshes me. your mind and your spirit, kind of, and then you can just start from a fresh start. And that's an advice that I should follow more. I mean, sometimes I really am one of those that uh, uh, get the negative feedback and wants to immediately jump back in or get really angry about the feedback instead of just accept it, trying to go forward. That was something, I, I mean, you know Gianluca Valles, but I'm not sure if Gianluca was just, I shouldn't show him that I feel like that as well, or because he was like, uh, yeah, was rejected. Okay, let's look for what to do next. While I was exploding with uh, reality. This guy has done a fight <laughs> lines review. It's not acceptable with all the efforts and everything and so on. Uh, but uh, but well, yeah. there's two things to bear in mind here. One is that as we get older, uh, hopefully we get better at coping with these things and more experienced and, and, and humility touches us a little bit. And we realize that we can't control everything in life. We can't, we will fail and we will, things will go wrong. And there's just not much you can do about it. And especially yeah. as you get to a late age in life and you begin to lose people that you love or have known for many years, you realize ultimately that none of us are gonna be here for very long. And it's pointless getting so worked up over small, small things. Uh, when you're younger, it's much harder to realize that because you're, you're full of energy and ambition and, and the smallest thing can put you into a rage or, or, or a, a bad mood or, or whatever. Uh, but, you know, you learn with experience. And the other thing is to remember that we're not all uniform personalities. Uh, we, are, we are different people. Some of us calm, cool uh, people, and some of us get into rage about the smallest things. And we can't help that. That's, 
hardwired into our into our personalities and the more you try and go against your basic nature the the, the harder it's going to be for you so sometimes you just have to let it out and just say look that's who i am um it's not ideal but it is it's me and hopefully i can improve but that's who i am and you just have to let go with your own personality right so vaz we've talked about the the role of failure in our lives right and it's just part of the process in anything that we do it something will go wrong as you say and that's just the way it goes uh but as we approach the end of our session uh what are the three key lessons that you would like to for us to take away and especially uh for us phd students as professionals in the making i think the number one lesson what would i say my my experience is this the number one lesson uh, is to never forget that that people are everything not not the science not the work it's the people uh, in in every aspect of your life but particularly if you're going to have a good professional career and the reason i say that is because the the number the people who graduate from this program or generally speaking from top universities around the world they're all to a certain degree on a similar playing field you know the the university is recognized their topic is is recognized in in their in their field uh, and so you know they're lining up for these jobs or to be successful in a particular career roughly from a similar starting point but what distinguishes people especially when big corporations are hiring and especially now post covid in the modern sensibility the assessments they're making are how is this person going to fit in with the people that are in this organization the people that are outside of this organization that we have to work with that we have to present ourselves to the people that they're going to be talking to about their work <clears throat> and that assessment is not easy to make but it's quite obvious sometimes especially in big companies <clears throat> where they put you into these scenarios when they try and hire you they don't just do a one interview they tend to put you in scenarios uh who is good at working with other people and who isn't and that same applies throughout your lives <clears throat> the most important thing when you get to a later age the most important thing to you to, to is all of the successes that you've had professionally etc etc they're great and fantastic and good milestones but the best memories you'll have when you when you finish um are going to be those times that you spent with people that you enjoyed being with family or friends or colleagues those are the great memories of life and sometimes we get so narrowly focused on ambition and succeeding with career that we forget how important those things are and we get to make time for those things and we forget that each of those encounters is also a learning process in yeah. how to how to work with others how to you know fit into the lives of of others which is what you're doing for the rest of your right so that's our lesson. first one what would the second more? one be oh right got to be more um <laughs> free that's uh we always go for free i mean you have given us so many insights that it's pretty easy to pick <laughs> actually it's rather complicated um well we 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 we've touched on we've touched on the importance as far as i'm concerned of being quite 
um, sensible and organized and, and having and trying to have a clear head when thinking about your, your, your future. Uh, and what that means is just taking a day or two out now and again to just look at where you are, where you want to be and to do a bit of planning and not to just fall into each day in this state where I think that there's a special word for it these days where people are so intoxicated by being busy and super busy and making lists of a hundred things that they have to do every day um, that they forget that if you're so busy concentrating on doing a list of things every day, you're not looking up to see where you actually want to go and where you might want to be five years or 10 years, where, what, what's the shape or direction of your life that you mm -hmm. eventually want to live. Um, and I think a lot of, enough people don't do that. And it's so hard when you're, when you're younger and when you're in something as pressurized as a PhD to be able to do that. Uh, but sometimes it just it helps to just go fishing with your friends or, or go and have a party with your parents or something and just go away from it all and just think about these things now and again. It'll definitely benefit you, even if you don't make any change to your life, it will still benefit you to think about these things. So that's two. And the last thing I think is just, it's simple. It's just, you've got to have fun. You've got to have fun in life because otherwise life is just not worth it. You know, you could, you could be earning a lot of money and yeah, that's fun in its own, own right. And that's great. It takes away a lot of the stress. Never let anyone tell you that it isn't important to earn a decent living. I know that it's now quite the modern view seems to be that, well, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't earn any money, you can just spend the rest of your life volunteering. But uh, take it from me, that for most people, maybe not everyone, but for most people, it is absolutely important that you do get into a career that pays you reasonably well so that you don't have financial pressures in life that stop you from enjoying your life or making or controlling your life, I should say, and making the decisions that you want to make. Now I could come back to it. So although my parents stopped me from being a writer, when I wanted to be, which was age 17, and not go to university and just spend all my day messing around on a typewriter. In the end, I'm incredibly thankful to them, although they've passed on now, uh, that they forced me to get my degree and you know to do a proper job because those years as a management consultant allowed me to then come back and, and take a lesser paying job in, in academia, which has given me more flexibility and time to spend with my family, my friends, and to write, you know, management right. consultancy is incredibly long hours and incredibly stressful. It doesn't leave you, I still try to write, but it didn't leave me as much time as I, uh, as I now have. So those are my three. Right. So it's a balance, right? It's, it's not all about the money, but it's also not a romantic uh, thing about what's your passion and then you can live off your passion and that's it. It's, it's finding the right balance of things. Yeah. Look, don't let any, if somebody wants to go and play a guitar, don't, don't feel that I, anything I'm saying is, is stopping you from, from doing that. All I'm saying is that go into it with your eyes open, uh, knowing that you know, if you decide to completely uh, not go for a, a, a regular career, you might well struggle at later points in your life when a guitar playing won't seem so, just guitar, just guitar playing on its own won't seem 
uh, so wonderful. Yeah. yeah, also because everything when it is your reason for living is a lot more complicated, even when we think that art is not that uh, much complicated, uh, taking playing the guitar when you're in front of stadiums, that's quite, uh, quite a different type of job. <laughs> so, Vaz, I would say I don't know how to uh, thank you because this was an extremely insightful hour. Uh, thank you very much for being with oh, us. Thanks for, for inviting me for a chat. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And thank you everyone for joining us in this talk. We've, we've had a great time. We've also benefited from your questions and comments and it's been great. And remember everyone that if you want to come forward and speak to us and participate as a guest, you're very welcome. In the end, we are interested in your failures, your messed up moments. Thank you, everyone. See you next time. This has been the Messed Up series. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the series at uclsecretsociety.org slash messed up.